If we haven't met, I'm Deb Lemoyne. I'm the executive pastor here at Salem, and I am happy to be preaching this morning as we finish up our sermon series on Flawed and Faithful. Terry alluded to a book group that I have been doing. I st- my first session was this week, Thursday night. I see one person in the room who was there, but I'm going to tell you, if you listen to the online sermon, I admitted in the online sermon that I preached earlier in the week that my book group was a complete failure because really no one had signed up. And I realized the reason why, I think, is that without knowing it, I had purchased the book on Kindle. It's a wonderful book by the British scholar N.T. Wright, who wrote a biography of the Apostle Paul, who we're going to be talking about today. And I read along for a while, and it was brilliant. It was a fascinating read, and then I'd fall asleep for a little while on a summer afternoon, and then I'd pick it up the next weekend. But over a period of weekends, I realized I had chosen a really long book. And I think anybody who bought the book in paper format realized that faster than I did and maybe abandoned ship. But in the end, we actually had a great group of people. None of us had actually finished the book, but we had a great discussion anyway. And I think that the reason I chose it, I stand by. N.T. Wright's a brilliant scholar, and he was talking brilliantly about Paul. And Paul is an important character for us. You know, 28% of the New Testament that we have was written by Paul. 32,408 words, depending on the translation you're using. He wrote 13 letters, which is the most individual documents we have from any author in the New Testament. Now, maybe some of the smaller letters were written by his followers later on, and probably most of it he dictated. But you get the idea. Paul's words are important. By comparison, my favorite gospel author, Luke, wrote 37,932 words, two books of the Bible, but a whole lot of those are actually about Paul in the book of Acts, one book about the life of the early church and one book actually about Jesus, the gospel of Luke, which brings us to Jesus himself, if you're looking at word counts. These three were contemporaries, and I found this interesting. You know, we have no known writings directly from Jesus. We have one story where Jesus writes in the Gospel of John, where you'll recall there's a woman caught in the act of adultery. There was actually a man there, too. There were two of them. But the woman is about to be stoned for committing the act, and Jesus famously writes something in the dirt, and we don't know what it is. We could probably preach a whole sermon series speculating on what he might have said. But whatever the words he wrote were, they were so powerful that her accusers walked away, no stone is thrown, and Jesus, the, Jesus famously says, your accusers have walked away, go now and sin no more. Famous words. You know, Jesus speaks often and is quoted often, even if others are writing down his words, about 31,426 words. So we've got about 30,000 words from all of them, Jesus, Paul, and Luke. Jesus is the main character of the writings of both Luke and Paul. The Gospels tell the story of Jesus, but Paul, in his letters, shapes the early theology of the church. He's writing essentially to house churches, the very earliest followers of Jesus, explaining to them how faith can change their lives and the lives of their communities. When we think about the life of Jesus, we're thinking about the words that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have written. But when we think about faith in Jesus, we're very often thinking in the language of Paul. Even though the Bible prints the Gospels in front of the letters of Paul, the letters chronologically were actually written first. They're some of the earliest words we have about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what beautiful words they are. 
how many of us find some of our most treasured words in Paul's writings? Take just one chapter of one letter, Romans 8. I know my summer book choice was too long for most of us, but I'm going to encourage you to go back and reread just the eighth chapter of Romans. A lot of scholars say that in these 982 words, not so many at all, you really have all the key elements of Paul's early theology. It's the most critical chapter in everything he's written, and it's one of the most beautiful. Bach turned it into an entire cantata. The British actor David Suchet of Agatha Christie fame converted to Christianity after reading Romans 8 in a hotel room and then went on to make those famous documentaries about Paul. When we think of a life of faith, a life of hope, we're often without realizing it thinking in the words that Paul wrote. N.T. Wright said that in Romans 8, Paul's theological arguments blossom like a flower opening into full bloom. There are so many words, words that we memorize and hang on our walls and send in letters of encouragement. When I had a dark chapter in my life many, many years ago now, a friend from this church actually sent me a card that quoted Romans 8, and those words in that time changed my life in ways that still impact me today. I want you to listen to just a few of these words from this gifted, gifted author and see if you hear some of your favorites. In verse 1, Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Or how often have we been comforted in difficult times? Because Paul assures us in verse 18 that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. And I know I've not been alone in finding hope in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently. Or how about when we don't know how to pray, but we lean into Paul's advice that says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And perhaps my personal favorite of all, you all have heard me say this many times, we know that in all things, God works for what? For the good of those who love them. God works for the good of those who love him. Those are just a few lines from one chapter of one letter. There is a lot of theology there, a lot of inspiring faith. It's the reason we study the words of Paul. But here's the thing about Paul. Just like the rest of us, he is intensely human. He is faithful, but he is also flawed. Alongside those words of Paul that inspire are words that confuse, words that don't flow seamlessly from one historical context to another, words that are easy to misread and hard to translate, words that have been used to justify unspeakable violence, to hold back, to shut up, to keep down. May God forgive us for the things we have done with some of Paul's words. But when the words of Paul confuse us about how we ought to treat one another or treat our neighbors, I think it's important to remember that everything Paul ever wrote was intended to point us toward Jesus. 
And the words of Jesus are clear and timeless on this issue. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, Jesus commands us, and love your neighbor as yourself. That may be hard to do, but it's not hard to understand what he's asking us to do. Paul's life story is a frustrating blend of flawed and faithful. N.T. Wright speaks of Paul's intellect so often for good reason. Paul was a Roman citizen, likely educated in the best schools of his day. His command of scripture was clear, but so was his command of rhetoric and history and philosophy, all the great minds of his day. Paul knew them. But I'm not sure that I would have enjoyed having a meal with Paul. I'm not sure I would have liked him at all as a person. He was faithful, but he was indeed flawed. He was very, very sure of himself. He took pride in calling himself a zealot. He could be violent, especially early in his life, and he condoned and encouraged the violence of others. He was bossy. On a ship voyage to Rome when he was a prisoner, he famously commanded the sailors about how to steer the ship, and Paul was from a family of tent makers who knew nothing about the sea. Paul was what we would probably call today a know-it-all. He thought he was smarter than most people in the room, and he actually may have been, but he did not hesitate to tell them so with great arrogance. Paul was certain that he was right, that any means justified his ends, and that it was his way or the highway until literally one day on a highway, it wasn't anymore. Paul tells the story this way. He says, I was traveling to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, when at midday along the road, I saw light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and my companions. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul is struck blind by the light, and he remains blind for three days until another man, Ananias, who is just as convinced that he's right, but in a completely different way, also sees the Lord. Hear his story in the, in the book of Acts. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight then Ananias answered, and you could almost hear his tone of voice. He says, you know, Lord, I've heard, I've heard about this man from many, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. This is the famous road to Damascus conversion experience we all think about when we think about Paul's life. It's the beginning of his ministry as we know it. It's the point when he starts using his Roman name Paul instead of his Hebrew name Saul. Our knowledge of Paul largely picks up from this point, and we really don't like to think about Paul's life before this point for good reason. 
Paul's first appearance in the book of Acts places him ringside at the violent stoning of Stephen, an early Jesus follower. He was encouraging and possibly even supervising the act. Paul went on to become an ambitious and well-known persecutor of the early followers of the way. That authority and commission that Paul refers to from the chief priests was the authority and commission to arrest and persecute those who disagreed with him about who Jesus was and what that meant for the future. Ananias was scared of Paul for very good reason. Adam Hamilton points out that blind ambition and unwavering religious conviction can be a dangerous combination, and in Paul's case, they certainly were. But here's the thing. When God spoke to Paul that day on the road to Damascus, Paul actually listened. And I think we sometimes overlook that part of the miracle. Not that God spoke, but that Paul and Ananias were both willing to listen to what they desperately did not want to hear. As smart as Paul was, as successful as he was, as well-educated as he was, God essentially says to him, you've got it wrong. He stops him in his tracks, tells him to change directions, and Paul, amazingly, is willing to do it. Look at the word God uses, goad. What does that mean to goad? A goad was actually a long stick with a point on the end that farmers would use to turn their oxen in a direction. They'd poke at them until they turned. So to kick against the goads was to be stubborn, to refuse to turn, to be willing to hurt yourself rather than go in the direction you were being told to go. God is essentially saying to Paul, hey, you may be smart and you may be well-educated, but you are going in the wrong direction. And to his credit, Paul changes course. And to their credit, Ananias and that early community allowed him to do it. But it took time, it took effort, and it took some humility from everyone involved. That experience on the road to Damascus may have been one moment in time, and it changed Paul's direction, but it took him years to figure out what that meant and how to fit into the new community that he was now claiming. Remember that Paul didn't first learn about Jesus on that road to Damascus. Paul knew the story of Jesus and was among those who found it not just unpersuasive, but dangerous. And there are so many vast historical reasons for why. I really can't point you towards that long book on, from N.T. Wright enough. But he really believed it was dangerous for a good historical reason. But when confronted with an actual experience of Jesus, Paul realizes that he was wrong. Paul had to come to terms with the fact that despite his great intellect, he had failed to understand what God was really doing. Paul then had to take time to travel, to read, to study, and to discuss. He had to talk to people who thought differently than he thought. He had to interact with people that weren't like him. He had to interact and learn from people he'd actually persecuted for thinking differently. And he had to admit that they had something to teach him. Paul spent his whole life working it out. He went from being a great persecutor of the way to being a great theologian of the way. And because he tended to work out all his thoughts on paper, we've got all 30,000 of those words to guide us through our own theological struggles. But do you know what Paul remained if we look honestly at the story? 
bossy, arrogant, headstrong, overconfident. I still don't think I would have liked him before Damascus or after. He argues in his letters about his status within the early movement. He wanted the same authority as those who had walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and lived with Jesus. Paul says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Paul's ambition, his desire for status, they remained after that road to Damascus experience. God did not take an imperfect person, make him perfect, and then use him. God called an imperfect person whose broken, messed up pieces could be put together exactly the way God needed for that moment in time. Paul's intellect and his arrogance, his leadership and his stubbornness, his gift for languages, his ability to travel freely as a Roman citizen, God used all of these pieces of Paul for good. And maybe, just maybe, God didn't choose Paul despite the failings of his early life. Maybe God chose Paul because of them. Maybe God knew that only someone who had doubted and struggled, someone who had gotten it wrong and had to admit their mistake, only someone whose mind and heart combated so much over how to live with that experience, maybe only someone who struggled like that could help us in our own struggles to answer really the same great questions of faith. Not just who is Jesus, but who is Jesus to me? That experience, that relationship, it matters as much as our knowledge. And as hard as it is to admit that our biblical heroes are flawed, it's important because it doesn't just help us to understand them better. It helps us to understand ourselves better. The more we learn about Paul, the more we see his good parts and his bad parts. And so it is with the people around us and with ourselves. Our partners, our friends, our parents and kids and coworkers, our neighbors, the people we love the most are often the ones that frustrate us the most, aren't they? Because they're the most intimately familiar with both their good parts and their bad. And what God is saying here is that all of that, all of that can be used for good. We can't cherry pick personality traits any more than we can cherry pick scripture. It is all part of the story. And we need to find a way to make sense of it for our lives. But remember how Jesus calls us to respond to that with love. When our people confuse us, when our scriptures confuse us, Jesus calls us to respond with love. Because we're all on a journey, friends, and I'm going to invite the band to be coming back up. And somewhere on that journey, God will stop us in our tracks and call each of us to do a new thing, to live a new life. He's going to goad us in a new direction. And we might have to admit that we were wrong. We might have to hear a new opinion or admit that we really aren't the smartest person in the room. God might tell us that times have changed and it's time to do a new thing. We might have to give someone a second chance. We might have to give ourselves a second chance. We'll still be imperfect, but we can do more, be more, love more than we ever thought possible. And I want you to hold on to that hope 
when you find yourself struck blind on the side of the road someday. Because as a very brilliant but very flawed man once said, God will use all things for good. <laughs>